Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. During this unprecedented period impacting us all, we are creating and sharing some extra episodes that we hope you find available, either particularly timely or relevant or that allow for some distraction. This episode is part of our Heroku in the Wild series and we hope that you enjoy it. Welcome to Kodesh. This is Greg Noakes, a Master Technical Architect with Heroku. Today I'm talking with Ryan Townsend of Shift Commerce about how to build an app while there's a pandemic going on. And is that a good idea? So without any further ado, Ryan, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm Ryan Townsend. I'm the CTO of Shift Commerce. Um, so I co-founded my business um, and led the development of the e-commerce the e platform that we develop. Cool. And you were on an earlier version of Kodish, uh, as I recall, um, the application performance and building SaaS on PaaS in April of 2019. Is that correct? Yeah, I think I was in the early few episodes. I think it was like episode seven or something like that. I was, I think I was up for Dreamforce. Um, so I've spoken there a couple of times before. So while I was there, I thought well, I'll nip into the Heroku office and let's record a podcast. So this is a bit different topic this time, however, um, because of course the world looks different. We, you know, we've got a global pandemic, climate change, all sorts of stuff going on. What prompted you to go ahead and looking at building a new app during all of this world-changing events? So um, obviously the retail sector has been hit pretty hard by this, and particularly in the UK because we had quite a, a strict lockdown. It, it was something like a third of all retail became e-commerce um, in May. Wow. And uh, non-food online spend has almost doubled since January. So people are spending far more money online. Um, and obviously they couldn't go to all the shops very easily. Um, you know, a lot of shops had to be shut. Um, one of our biggest clients is a company called Matalan. They're a fashion retailer and they employ something like 13,000 people. So quite a significant uh, portion of the UK. Um, they have something like 220-ish uh, stores that they sell with physical retail. Um, mm -hmm. And then they have their website as well, which is the side of things that we typically manage. Obviously, when all of their stores had to shut, that, that meant a massive hit to their revenue. Um, so we really had to scramble to, to help them get through COVID and then obviously succeed on the other side of it as well. So that's kind of really where uh, we really needed to step in. So one, one thing that they saw was that because this volume was increasing online so much, their distribution centers couldn't cope with the volume of orders anymore. You know, everyone had to buy online. Um, and as people, you know, realize that they're going to have to be stuck indoors for a lot of the next kind of weeks and months, um, you know, people wanted to kind of stock up on, on kind of those basic clothing items and things like that. So they needed a way to be able to continue selling as much as possible because there was that pent up demand there. Um, but also, you know, they needed to, to offset all those stores that had to be shut. And then there was even more like further concern at one point because their distribution centers, um, obviously they had to, to look at social distancing within them as well. Mm -hmm. um, so that was further impacting their ability to ship online orders and increasing that backlog again and again and again. And then the kind of final element um, that we had to, to look at for them was obviously with a retailer of that size, um, you know, a lot of them in the UK don't just have 
enormous pots of cash sat around, um, kind of a rain, you know massive rainy day fund. Um, so we needed to help them, you know, raise funds as like a safety net to get through and make sure that, you know, there's thousands and thousands of jobs there that we needed to protect. And how were you able to protect those jobs? I mean, I could see a couple ways that I'd think about it, maybe turning stores into distribution centers themselves, perhaps. But uh, how did you approach that? Yeah, uh, you, you hit the nail on the head right there. Um, so so what we did is we uh, worked with them to get access to their RFID stock data. Um, so it was actually a few years um, previous to the whole pandemic situation. Um, our CEO had actually, he, he sat on the board at Matalan and had initiated a project to install RFID tags into all of their products rather than just having the traditional barcodes. Mm-hmm. And then the, the idea behind that being that you have far greater stock file accuracy. Um, so, you, you know, you can walk around the stores with a, like a magic wand effectively and it'll pick up all the items that you have there um, and be able to do that stock report really easily and really accurately. Um, so the, the great thing is that that had already been in place and we just needed access to it. So that's where we kind of kicked things off and said, okay, well, if we, if we know what stock is in each of these stores, obviously they don't have customers going in at the moment. So we can accurately um, calculate whether a, an online order could actually be fulfilled by one of those stores. Um, so that's that's kind of how we how we kicked off the project is literally just doing like a, a proof of concept algorithm. We effectively double rooted um, every online order for a period of time through both the, the, the traditional mechanism, which just kind of sent them off to the distribution centers and into this algorithm that would detect whether it could have gone to a store or not. Um, so we kind of simulated what would happen with real production data um, and with without, you know, obviously causing no disruption to the actual the real order flow. And then off the back of that, we could quickly see that we could offload masses of orders into the stores. So that's when, you know, things ramped up and we, and we had to make that reality really. That's really cool. Um, that's a fantastic idea. And you could probably then start to bring back some of those employees that had been furloughed from the store so they could uh, fulfill orders and ship them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, in the early days, we, we trialed it with, a, I think it was a, a set of 10 stores initially. Um, it was very eerie going into the into the stores with no customers there and, uh, and helping their staff. And kind of, we, were, we went in to look at, you know, how optimal can we get the flow of, you know, going, in, going around with a trolley and picking the items? You know, was it better to pick one order at a time or was it better to print off, say, 10, 20 orders and then walk around with your little trolley and um, go and, and pick the items off the shelves just as if you were a real customer, really. So we, we looked at that whole process and how they they pack the orders and then how they get collected and all that kind of stuff um, just to see you know how streamlined we can get this and, and see it as more, more than just um, reacting to the pandemic, but actually a long-term solution to de-risking the business going forwards um, because you've always got the ability to scale up and down this you know if for whatever reason we went into a second wave and the stores got shut down again this protects the business you know it gives them another opportunity to keep fulfilling orders so if the employees don't have customers to deal with anymore because it's all shut down you know that would obviously give them far more capacity to ship online orders so they can they can fine-tune this uh, as they go along really since then you know they've been able to 
to roll this out as click and collect as well. Uh, before they had this process where click and collect orders would actually go from a distribution center, be shipped to that store where the customer would pick them up. So because the stores now had the technology that we'd built, they could actually pick and pack those click and collect orders directly in the store because we know whether they have the items already there. It was it was a big waste of money effectively picking and packing them in a distribution center only to send them to a store where the store might already have the items. You know, we're just moving around stock for no reason. And obviously there's costs and delays uh, involved in that. You know, you're having to pay couriers and having to wait for it all to get collected. Whereas this way, it's just a case of does that store already have that stock? go and collect the the items from there. So it, it actually opens the opportunity to come out of the other side of the pandemic far stronger than the, than the side that they went into it. So how long did it take from idea to trial to going live with this? So we built the initial algorithm in about a few days. It was a week at most. I mean, most of the time, was was actually tracking down where we could get this data from and getting it out of those systems. Um, you know, once we'd got access to the data, it was relatively straightforward for us to to implement these algorithms. Um, you know, we've built a platform that's completely API driven. Um, it's got a whole bunch of things like webhooks in there, so it's very easy for us to say, okay, when an order comes in, actually route it via this additional mechanism, which could analyze it and see whether it was applicable for the stores. So because we'd invested in that architecture and that flexible way of of working it meant that it was actually very easy for us to bolt on this service um so yeah it was about a week um to run the proof of concept and then the whole process of making this an actual reality you know actually allowing the stores to act as these miniature warehouses um you know and getting the employees back and getting things like printers in there for labels and hooking up different uh, couriers to come and collect the products and all that kind of stuff that took about four to six weeks, if I remember rightly. So it was fairly rapid. Yeah, I'd say so. That's 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 pretty impressive, being able to deliver this new functionality and, and change how a business does business in four or five, six weeks is pretty incredible. What sort of tools did you use to, to achieve this? I don't want to get into a sales pitch, but uh, <laughs> we relied on uh, Heroku quite heavily. Um, so, you know, even the proof of concept was was booted up as a Heroku app. You know, obviously, with having such short timeframes to work to, um, you know, we wouldn't be able to deliver fully kind of production-ready application within a week um, if we had to do all the kind of DevOps and, you know, all that stuff behind the scenes. So, you know, the initial proof of concept was... Uh, using Heroku Postgres, we use uh, Redis for kind of analyzing things. We've since evolved that to use things like the Heroku scheduler for polling for stock files. We also use Kafka. Um, so we attach that. We actually have it already as part of our ecosystem uh, for our applications for doing various bits of integration um, and and kind of data analysis. Yeah, so we could just bolt that straight into the new application and it gets that that access to that full stream of events and you know is able to contribute back into it. Um, so you know as as it evolved into this production application, we were able to just kind of attach the existing parts of our ecosystem very easily um, and focus on the actual building of the application rather than the, the plumbing behind the scenes, which was great. So yeah, I mean that that's kind of really how we kick things off really. Um, just you know dive straight into coding. Um, you know, at that point, because it was the proof of concept, you know, we weren't really 
overly concerned about things like performance um, or scaling and things like that. We just needed to see how it would operate. You know, now we've we've optimized it to a point where even though we're still using things like Ruby, we're not using anything like fancy, particularly performant language or anything like that, not doing any special optimizations. Um, the API responds in something like 20 milliseconds wow. and a routing job takes less than uh, 100 milliseconds. So we can decide within 100 milliseconds of receiving an order whether a store is able to process that order or not. Um, you know, out of hundreds and hundreds of stores. Um, and as I say, that's with minimal uh, performance optimization. So we, we've really taken this application from proof of concept through without having to do some major rewrite or anything like that. You know, and, and Heroku's just been there to help us scale it, um, you know, as we go through, really. That's that's amazing. And, and as a Rubyist, uh, an old school Rubyist, that makes my heart fond and happy. <laughs> Um, so I, I've seen lots and lots of customers and I've, I've advised lots and lots of customers about using Kafka as sort of a bus between microservices. Is, is that how you're using it in this use case? Yeah, I'd say so. So one of the main things is that uh, once an order has been routed, uh, it then needs to make it into our order management system, um, which is obviously where it can get processed. You know, people can ship the items, et cetera. Uh, and that process goes through Kafka. You know, we wanted something that was incredibly robust, you know, designed from the ground up to be rock solid. Um, and and Kafka is the perfect solution for that. You know, it's a little more tricky than than just running the likes of Postgres. Um, so, you know, that's particularly why we, we'd like the Heroku solution where it's it's pretty much all managed for you. Um, you know, we've, we've got nothing but good things to say about the service there. It's It's been phenomenal uptime. I don't think we've had any outages, any performance issues there at all. It's just kind of set and forget really, which is which is fantastic. So yeah, it allows us to tie together a whole variety of different services behind the scenes. So you get that benefit. And the great thing is that obviously if something goes down or if something has an error, it just stops processing and then you can address that and it and the, the service can pick up on all the chronological messages from then on. So you get that kind of automated healing process which has been useful a few times. You know, we've had times when some bizarre data has made it through and then, you know, an exception has got raised. The great thing is that, you know, the developers can jump on that and they can see the error. Nothing's getting processed in the meantime. Either then we can look, you know, do we need to skip this message or do we need to address it? You know, how do we need to respond to that, fix it and and carry on? Um, So, yeah, it's the perfect use case for e-commerce, I think. Um, you know, where you've got these kind of disparate systems and different steps in the workflow of, you know, someone going from placing an order through to receiving it um, Mm -hmm. and even beyond when it comes to things like returns and refunds and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, we rely on it quite heavily. Yeah, everything from triggering webhooks, you know, we use it for things like keeping search indexes up to date, all sorts of stuff. Can you talk about how you guys approach your security and trust uh, stance um, and and how how that works on the Heroku platform? Sure. I mean, one of the things uh, from our perspective running an e-com platform is that, you know, we have to care about things like PCI. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, thankfully, Heroku checks a lot of the boxes for you. So there's, there's a lot of things that you don't really have to worry about. You know, that could be a whole talk in itself is, is running PCI uh, applications on Heroku, um, you know, because there's so much that, 
it, you know, there's a feature for this. So it's just like, you know, when, when you're doing your audits and things like that, it makes it very easy for you. Um, so that's, you know, things like um, the uh, private spaces and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can lock things down with firewalls and, you know, segregate things off. Um, you know, there's all the things around logging, um, you know, so you've, you've got easy access to that stuff. It's very straightforward to be secure on Heroku. Um, it's almost like you've got to go out of your way to make it less secure. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things that it's really hard to get right. It's, you know, there's, you know, the likes of yourselves and, you know, we deal with, um, CDN partners, people like Fastly, Mm -hmm. you know, both, both of your companies have got massive teams of people who deal with security on a day in day out basis in my business. Yeah, we can, we can invest in that, but we're not going to have the scale of teams that, you have so it makes far more sense to outsource what you can to a partner who truly understands this stuff and can really innovate in that space even you know it's one thing to just kind of clone a bunch of features that are necessary to check some boxes on pci and and you know make sure that you're safeguarding data and whatnot but then there's there's a whole other industry in responding to you know upcoming threats and things like that so you know having entire teams of people who are dedicated to working on those features and and working on you know upcoming threats and how you address different things that makes me be able to sleep at night. So um, obviously we, we we are dealing with sensitive data here. It's critical that you know you're investing in that area at the smaller end of the scale for anyone who's considering doing it themselves. It's it's a no brainer just to just to pay a little bit of money and and get a partner to offload as much as you can onto. But beyond that, because this is a fairly, you know, going back to the whole um, kind of older routine COVID side of things, because this is a fairly straightforward app, we could live very easily within the Heroku ecosystem. It's, you know, absorbing a few webhooks and uh, running some algorithms over some data. So um, the security aspects on, on this part of the application was quite straightforward. Anything that you've taken away from this experience or any advice to anybody who is in a situation like you were in where they have an idea and they need to iterate it on it quickly, um, how would you go about redoing this if if you had to do it again? I think in principle, um, before you even get to problems like this, the the word agile is kind of thrown around. Um, I think agility might be a better word to use here but you know being ready to respond very quickly um to changes in the market you know it might not be the next pandemic it might be you know one of your competitors suddenly has gone bust and you need to capitalize on that or it might be that there's a new entrance to your industry and some phenomenal new businesses come up and, and suddenly you know half your customers are looking at walking away that kind of mentality of something can always happen how do we ensure that we can respond to it as quickly as possible you don't necessarily need to start making all the plans now but you need to have the capability to respond quickly you know so the more it's like educated uh, flexibility um, that you can build into you know any any applications you're building and things like that thinking about how you could extend them in future is the foundation of delivering on that agility i think um, from you know as we start to get a bit more technical yeah one of the things that i like to talk about and i like to think about is a combination of simplification and abstraction 
if you can abstract hard problems into simple solutions, and then you can interconnect those simple solutions in simple ways, you can keep in your head the whole system you're building. And that can give you some of that agility sometimes to go ahead and rethink how can we use what we have and reconfigure it in a new way to respond to a different problem. Yeah, absolutely. I think having a a collection of services that you're very used to using, you know how you can tie them together, you know that they are extensible, that's a great foundation of a business. Abstraction is one of those things that you have to be careful with because you end up just adding more and more layers. If you try and get too flexible and too uh, generic with a solution, yeah, that's where you get indirection and this sprawling mess of layers. But yeah. as you say, that that's why that simplification part is critical there. You know, you really need to be balancing, you know, how much can we abstract versus what adds more complexity um, to the overall solution. It's, it's that systems thinking of what does the whole system look like together? What's my whole architecture like together? Not just, oh, what does this one application do? You know, how can we build a service that can fit in here, do what it needs to do, be part of an ecosystem, and then also be extended and and worked upon and built upon in future? Exactly. I think one one of the things that I've seen from all of the people I talk to is the folks that are the most successful tend to build platforms, not products. And then out of those platforms, their products kind of evolve. And it sounds like that's what you've done. So you you have that platform and you were able to quickly build a new product or solution on top of that platform. Yeah, absolutely. I think businesses should always see themselves as miniature platforms. It's like you need you need your own platform. It's not as a single product. Um, but you know, take a retailer, for example. Um, you need to be thinking about, okay, how can I expose my inventory levels? How can I expose my product catalog? How can I get product imagery, um, all access to all these different things so that I can do things like go into different marketplaces. You know, during this lockdown, Amazon's absolutely smashed it out of the park mm-hmm. um, because a lot of retailers had to suddenly migrate their products into uh, their warehouses. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, bricks and mortar retailers who literally didn't have a, have a website or a, a mechanism to start selling products. And they, they suddenly had to scramble to, be able to put those online, um, you know, if the, if those data sources were readily available, if you had all your product imagery, your catalog, any price books, um, inventory, all that kind of stuff, you know, maybe even to the extent of customer data, maybe more of ingesting that rather than exporting it. Um, but all those kinds of different facets of your business, if you've got access to those as a platform, and it's a case of any customer facing interaction you might have is using your business as that platform. Uh, it doesn't need to be t- necessarily technology. It can, you know, it can be more kind of real than that. Um, but effectively, if that's the way that you see your business, you know, you can respond to any changes going forwards. I totally agree with that sentiment that, you know, having that platform thinking is incredibly important to being able to respond to changes quickly and be successful. You can be a build a very brittle thing that will work in one use case, but then the world changes, you know, we have a COVID or we have climate change, all of that can destroy those brittle uh, infrastructures that people build. But if they build more of a flexible platform, they can then pivot quickly and then they can respond and they can survive. Yeah, absolutely. I think most businesses out there should be doing a review of these kinds of systems. You know, what's an absolute nightmare when you come to change it? 
you know, what needs to go through change management boards and extensive QA processes, you know, what what hasn't been automated well enough, what has a kind of flaky test suite that kind of half covers the application and doesn't really give us a, the confidence to roll it out without everyone sat there biting their teeth, you know, that kind of thing, um, you know, you should be reviewing right now and saying, okay, well, you know, if the world changes, could we foresee this application or this service being something that could hold us back? You know, if it's like four months to test something to get it out into production, then you know you need to be thinking. Well, is that going to be quick enough for us to respond? Yeah. So I think that's a, a great place to start for any any business right now. You know, if you're already established, thinking, you know, if if tomorrow we had a whole different you know situation like a pandemic, what would be holding you back? You know, hopefully COVID has raised some of these things to the forefront for you. Well, hopefully your business doesn't have any at all, uh, <laughs> which would be lovely, and you were able to pivot very, very quickly. But if if you have had those, hopefully some of them have been brought to the, the forefront. And I guess it's just a case of you know checking: do you have any others behind the scenes? You know, what does what does the whole team? get stressed about and 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 complain about uh, whenever they have to change it. That's the targets for me. Thank you so much, Ryan. I really enjoyed talking to with you on this episode of Codish. Maybe we will have to go back and do a, a yet another episode with you talking about the security and PCI stance that you guys have and, and how Heroku makes that easier. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.